Hey, it's Josh. Before we get into the episode, I wanted to let you all know that the Vermont Public Spring Membership Drive has arrived. Donations from folks like you make everything we do here possible. If you want to help support our people-powered journalism, be sure to make a donation in any amount by March 16th by going to bravelittlestate.org donate. And as always, thank you for your support. For most of us, to live in Vermont is to drive in Vermont. We drive on back roads. We drive on the interstate. We drive the same roads over and over. And sometimes we get crazy and go somewhere new and discover new roads. There's also this thing that happens, and this is definitely not unique to Vermont, where you're driving along and you turn onto a road with a mysterious name. And you wonder where it came from. I uh, had traveled that road a few times, and I wondered about why it was called that. This happened to Richard Schwartz of West Dover. Many times I've traveled over uh, through Stratton down to Arlington on a back road, which is called Kelly Stand. And I've always wondered what the, how the road got its name. Who or what, Richard wanted to know, was Kelly Stand. From whence came the name of this meandering dirt road? In a quarter mile, turn right onto Kelly's Stand Road. Actually, it's a beautiful ride. If you go down on the Arlington side, uh, let me see, I think it's off uh, Kansas Road. You can get onto it from there. Turn right onto Kelly's Stand Road. And it, t- it brings you uh, all up alongside the uh, Roaring Brook. It's all very, very scenic all up through there. I've heard that there was a hotel over in West Wardsboro that was called that. And then and I just heard the other day that there used to be a fellow on the end of the road before the road was public that had a toll gate. Richard had heard a few theories about where the name Kelly Stand came from, but he wasn't sure. I haven't been able to find out, you know, definitely, because I, actually I wanted to find out where, if it was a hotel or something so I could go metal detecting here. Nice to meet you in person. Pleasure. Yeah, thanks for taking the time. Oh, you're welcome. The um, actual Kelly Stand area is yeah. two more, three more bridges up the road. Okay. Luckily, we were able to track down someone who knows the answer to Richard's question about Kelly Stand. We're going to hear it in a bit. This isn't the only question about a road name that we're taking on this month. In fact, we have three other road names to consider, thanks to a handful of curious Vermonters. We are calling this month's episode A Brief History of Vermont Road Names, so buckle up. From Vermont Public Radio, this is Brave Little State. I'm Angela Evansy. Here on the show, we take on your questions about Vermont. The goal is to make our journalism more inclusive, more transparent, and more fun. This month. I'm Dwayne Fowler. I live in East Middlebury. I'm Garrett Graff from Burlington. My name's Katie. And my name's Rich. And, and we, we live, live in Thetford Center, Center, Vermont. Questions about road names that you too may have had on your travels. Uh, let's do it. Yeah. It's much further than I remembered <laughs> 10 years ago. Is it a better road now? Uh, that, that depends on who you ask. <laughs> <laughs> we have support from the VPR Innovation Fund. Welcome. Thanks to Vita for their support of Brave Little State. Since 1974, Vita has helped Vermont businesses grow and thrive. 
from agriculture to energy, startups to family companies. Find solutions that fit your business. Visit VEDA.org to start your next chapter today. And Sunset Lake CBD, a farmer-owned business crafting CBD products right here in Vermont. Learn more about their sustainable farming practices, delivery options, and how to support local farmers at sunsetlakecbd.com. My name is Paul Gillis, and I uh, was asked to comment on the history of some roads. I've done some writing and some talking about the subject. And you are a road aficionado. I don't know how that designation is awarded. I don't know how that designation is awarded either, but it does seem like Paul Gillis qualifies. He's written a book on old Vermont roads. Uncommon Law, Ancient Roads, and Other Ruminations of Vermont Legal History. And here's the sort of thing Paul does for fun. I had to uh, speak uh, about old roads in Stratford a couple of Sundays ago, and I decided that I would take only turnpikes to get there from Berlin. Turnpikes, if you didn't know, are roads that you used to have to pay to drive on. This was mostly in the 1800s. And there were uh, over 120 turnpikes created by Vermont and usually went in areas where the towns just couldn't keep up with the maintenance. So anyway, Paul takes as many old turnpikes as he can to get to Stratford. So I took the Payne Turnpike down to near Brookfield, and then the Chelsea Turnpike had to skip a little bit there. No and then he calculates what all the tolls would have cost in 1800. So it would have cost me a dollar to go from Berlin to Stratford. So then I found that uh, calculator on the net that says, what's a dollar worth in 1800 today? And it was $51. And I thought, I wouldn't be going to Stratford that often if I had to pay $51 every time. We asked Paul to take a whack at the questions we got about Vermont road names. Here's the first. I'm Dwayne Fowler. I live in East Middlebury. On my daily commutes to uh, Burlington on 116, uh, I have noticed a road just north of Starksboro called States Prison Hollow Road. And it's a beautiful road to travel, but I see no evidence that there was anything to do with a, a state prison on this road. I'm very curious about where the name derives from. Thank you. To answer this question from Duane, Paul has a go-to source. Now, the source of this is one of the most wonderful books that you can get, and you need to have it in your library if you care about Vermont, and that's Vermont Place Names. It was written by Esther Monroe Swift, and it talks about the names of all the towns, the counties, the mountains, the rivers, the brooks. Esther Monroe Swift traveled around Vermont in the middle of the 20th century, collecting information about all sorts of place names. And here's what she learned about State's Prison Hollow Road. She said that one local explanation says that the name derived from the fact that the area once had some rather wild residents who might be qualified for the state's prison, while another explanation is that farming on such rocky land was thought to be almost as bad as having to serve a state prison sentence. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> so that's the answer to where the state's prison hollow road comes from? That's right. Oh, my gosh. Wow. Well, it is. It's maybe the answer. I mean, yeah. she's saying that might be it. Those that are, might be it. I, I, those are her theories. Know, yes. But I would trust Esther Monroe Swift before just about anybody on these. <laughs> but it turns out that if you ask the locals, neither of those answers is correct. My colleague Jane Lindholm actually drives by State's Prison Hollow Road on her daily commute. She asked around for some more homegrown answers to Duane's question. Here's Jane. Just so you can picture it, 
State's Prison Hollow is really the only road connecting the Addison County towns of Starksboro and Moncton. It skirts around the base of a ridgeline that runs north to south and cuts the towns off from one another. So this is really the only road that goes between them. It's a beautiful road winding through farm fields and forest. Throughout my childhood and into high school years, my grandparents lived over in Starksboro Village. And every Sunday afternoon, we spent over at Grandpa and Grandma's. Priscilla Pierce grew up on the Moncton side. To get there from here, you go through State's Prison Hollow. We'd go over, and if it had been snowy or something like that, you would get down the hollow and wonder if you were going to make it back up the other side. (laughs) Most people seem to agree with Priscilla that that's how the road got its name. Not because of some unruly residents or difficult farming conditions, but because in wintertime, once you got into the hollow, you might not be able to get out. Cars would slide backwards down the hill. The school bus couldn't get through. Being in the hollow in winter was like being stuck in a prison. But here's the ironic part. There's no hollow that you go through on State's Prison Hollow Road. It used to go through the hollow that gave it its name. But about 40 years ago, the route got changed. I remember well when they did it, but I can't um, remember exactly the time. Olive Phillips has lived on State's Prison Hollow Road her whole life. People kept telling me I should talk to Olive, that she's the one who knows everything. And I keep telling you I don't. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so maybe she doesn't remember everything. But Olive says she was a young adult sometime in the mid-1970s when the road crew came in and straightened out the road. At night, after work, she would walk down from her house to see the progress they were making. At the top of the hill... There was a 90-degree curve. They took some of my father's meadow and made that a little friendlier and so that it's more gradual. So what they did was they made the road go behind the actual hollow now. Is it a better road now? Uh, that, that depends on who you ask. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of like the old way, but, it, but I think it probably is easier for them to plow and things. Since you don't have to go down into the hollow anymore, there are no more worries about getting stuck in winter. So most motorists are probably pretty grateful. But the road name remains. I wanted to figure out one more thing. How long has this name been around? You're going to have to edit this. (laughs) Candace Polzella is a member of the Moncton Historical Society. I went to visit her at her farmhouse in town. She lay out a couple of old maps on her kitchen table, and we took a look. I don't know if this was official, um, but this was in uh, 1976. It's called Prison Hollow Road, not State's Prison Hollow Road. And then um, this is the walling map of 1857, and it's not even marked on here. So, no help there. A definitive answer remains elusive. But I did get a sense from Olive that even though the road is easier to drive on now... There are other reasons. It's still a little bit of a headache to have State's Prison Hollow as your address. Yeah, do you know what it's like to go and get your license? (laughs) (laughs) They look at you. (laughs) Do they really? A few people kind of, well, not seriously, but they're like, where, you know, where do you live? (laughs) (laughs) When people first find out where you live, are they curious about it? Yes. Yeah. Uh, So this is something that you've had to answer for your whole life? Oh, yeah. Thanks to Jane Lindholm for looking into that question. 
Moving on now to our next question askers. My name's Katie. And my name's Rich. Katie and Rich are two friends of mine, so I could make them introduce themselves in a super cheesy way. And, and we, we live, live in, in Thetford Center, Center Vermont. Vermont. Aww. <laughs> so cute. <laughs> and now for their question. What is the history of the town farm roads and poor farm roads around the state? And what was it actually like to live there? Katie and Rich live on a poor farm road in Thetford Center. There are seven others around the state and 24 town farm roads. And unlike state's prison hollow road, there is a very clear and definitive etymology here, though it isn't a very happy one. Our road expert, Paul Gillis, explains. Vermont towns at first were responsible for the poor. There wasn't a, a state welfare office or a state uh, aid office. Before Social Security or any state programs, and going all the way back to 1797, Vermont had a law modeled after the English poor laws. It said that local government had to, quote, maintain all the poor, lame, blind, sick, and other inhabitants who are not able to maintain themselves, unquote. This aid took many forms, one of which was the establishment of a town farm for uh, various purposes, not just for the poor, but for the disabled, and sometimes used as a house of correction uh, for uh, local affairs. These were the poor farms, or the town farms, that got roads named after them. You might end up on a poor farm if your own farm went under. But the farms also took in disabled people, like Paul said, and elderly people. And you were expected to farm. Towns were allowed to force residents of the poor farms to work, and if they didn't, they could be flogged up to 20 stripes. That's 20 lashes. Just beaten. Yes. So they were no doubt grim affairs. I wouldn't say that it had that uh, warm spirit of home. It was probably a very unpleasant place. It was probably designed to be so, so you wouldn't get too comfortable there. Paul says this is because towns didn't ultimately want poor people in their communities. I mean, it really does not paint a particularly positive portrait of early Vermont towns, you know, like the sort of spirit of, of these towns um, in their aversion to caring for the people in their communities. It was a problem that, that they couldn't really deal with, they, and they did their best, but uh, they didn't have a lot of resources early on. As federal and state welfare programs came around in the 20th century, the use of poor farms began to fade. And in 1967, the law that led to these farms was struck from Vermont's books. Today, you might drive a poor farm road or a town farm road and see little trace of the history there. But in South Woodstock, the former poor farm is still very visible from Route 106. My name is Nancy Lewis, and I live in South Woodstock on the Town Farm Road, and uh, it's a very special place. It stands up on a hill and big red barn, and we're very proud of, of the hillside. Nancy's parents-in-law bought this property in the 1940s. The Lewises were only the second owners after the farm's era as a poor farm, which lasted for about 100 years. And in terms of sort of like the legacy of the history, um, do people still refer to this as like the town poor farm? I, I, I sometimes omit the poor, but, but, I, but uh, as Bob knows, my license plate is TPF. TPF for town poor farm. Instead of raising sheep or cows, as had been done on the poor farm, the Lewis family kept horses. 
for pleasure riding. Although we might call it a farm, it was just fun raising horses here. <laughs> it, wasn't very, it wasn't a very serious business. They had some paid employees, but their kids did a lot of work too. Our children were our employees. <laughs> so a different kind of labor. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. They fed us well. At times, Bob. (laughs) Bob is Bob Holt, a retired surveyor here in town. A few years ago, he did a project with a group of fourth graders researching the history of this farm. Yeah, their town reports, at least from 1869, give an inventory of everything that was on the farm. How many cows, how many sheep. There were even a couple pigs. Bob and I walked down from Nancy's house, which is newer, to the original farmhouse and the big post and beam barn. Our guide is Darwin Lewis, Nancy's son. The pigeons have kind of taken over the top floor here, <laughs> and I take care of them, but I don't own the guns. So. <laughs> the top two stories of the barn are mostly empty, with scattered debris from times past. Are those your old sleds? They are. Oh, so cool. <laughs> that little one there, it was too small for me, but it was the fastest one down Densmore Hill. Yeah, sorry, I don't light bulbs. The ground floor is where the Lewis family kept their horses. So just um, describe what we're looking at for for listeners. Uh, This is a horse barn, all box stalls, red oak. uh, My parents put in in, I don't know, late 70s. The horse stalls have iron bars up top, and they sort of look like prison cells. When Bob Holt brought the fourth graders here, they got all excited because they thought this is where workers on the poor farm got locked up when they misbehaved. Of course it wasn't, but Bob says records show there were cells for punishing workers on this farm, in the boarding structure that used to be attached to the farmhouse. You know, because they refused to eat a certain thing that was provided, they were put in one of the cells with just bread and water for a period, not to exceed two days. It's the kind of thing that captures the imagination of elementary school students. But Bob says this chapter in Vermont's history is also a sensitive one for families in town. The stigma that was attached with being on the poor farm still survives to this day in that there was some sensitivity as we were doing this project and seeing all these actual names about using those names because some of the surnames are still here. People are still here, and they don't necessarily want it thrown around. That Holt is one of them. <laughs> Your last name. My last name. Yeah. They, they don't necessarily want it thrown around. That you know their ancestors were supported by the town because they were poor people. And the town farm roads and poor farm roads all over the state are a reminder of that history. And now to our third question. I'm Garrett Graff from Burlington, uh, and my question is, I notice a lot of roads named Lime Kiln Road as I drive around Vermont. What was a lime kiln, and why were they so prevalent in Vermont's early days? Full disclosure, Garrett Graff is a member of VPR's board of directors. He also happens to be a very accomplished journalist. Our show's policy is not to take on questions from VPR board members or staff, But this one seemed so innocuous that we made an exception. My colleague Liam Elder Connors picks it up here. Let's start off with the basics. What is a lime kiln? A lime kiln uh, was a 
furnace of sorts that was shaped a little bit like a large beehive, maybe like 15 or 20 feet. That's Paul Gillis, our roads expert. He says limestone would be cooked in those kilns at very high temperatures. What's useful about limestone is that when you cook it for enough time, it becomes quicklime, which is a powder that you can use for mortar or fertilizer, both useful things in Vermont's agrarian days. There are six lime kiln roads in the state that go through multiple towns. Now, theoretically, each one of those roads has a kiln near it. But as the old journalism saying goes, if your mother says she loves you, check it out. So, in this case, if the road is called Lime Kiln Road, I gotta find a kiln. Pull over here. All right. I, actually, I, we're actually right here. It's right there. That's it. Oh, cool. My guide on this expedition is Brennan Gothier. I'm an archaeologist with the Vermont Agency of Transportation in Montpelier. And also a lime kiln detective. Lime kiln detective now, yeah. That's me. That'll go on my LinkedIn page. <laughs> We're parked on the side of Lime Kiln Road in Charlotte. Brennan knows somewhere nearby there's an existing kiln. All right, let's do it. Yeah. We head into an overgrown field full of tall, prickly plants. Brennan points over to a mound surrounded by brush and trees. That's the kiln hiding in there. Oh yeah, here we go. Brennan scrambles up to the top, ducking branches. It's so overgrown, if Brennan wasn't with me, I would have thought that it was just a hill that happened to have a few rocks on it. We kneel down and Brennan points to a divot in the ground. So it's obviously been filled in over time, but at one time there would have been a hole here, kind of like a little volcano. And this is where you would have charged the limestone in the wood um, when we were letting it burn for, you know, days on end. Brennan looks around for more artifacts. Check this out. This, see this brick? He excitedly pulls half a brick out of the ground. This is called a fire brick. And uh, they were bricks that were fired with a different material and it allowed them to re resist heat. So you'd line the lime kiln with this. Brennan even manages to dig up a few pieces of lime at the site. This is lime that probably from the last burning that this thing ever saw. This is what you'd see in the end, basically. This is powdered lime. Oh, it just like totally just completely crumbled. Hand. Yeah. What Brennan's holding in his hand is why people built lime kilns, to burn limestone into a powder. To understand why there's even limestone to burn, we're going to take a brief geological detour with Lori Grigg, an assistant professor of environmental earth sciences at Norwich University. She says many, many years ago, there was an ocean in Vermont. And this is important because limestone is formed from seashells. So shells, whether they be big coral shells or clam shells or little tiny microscopic foraminifera or plankton, when they organisms die, accumulate on the bottom of the seafloor, and through time get buried and compressed and turned into a rock called limestone. And the kind of limestone we have a lot of in Vermont is marble. And that happens under high heat and pressure. And usually in Vermont, it happened during a series of mountain building events that formed the Green Mountains and the Appalachian Mountains. So we have bands of marble, which is limestone, throughout Vermont. That's what people would cook in the kilns to make quick lime. There used to be a lot of lime kilns around the state, possibly as many as 160, according to the essential book on Vermont's lime industry. It's called 200 Years of Soot and Sweat, the History and Archaeology of Vermont's Iron, Charcoal, and Lime Industries. 
In the book, author Victor Rolando writes the earliest lime kilns in the state were built by the French in the 1600s at Isle Lamont. But it wasn't until the early and mid-19th century that lime kilns really took off. The kiln that Brennan and I are exploring is probably from around that time period, the mid to late 19th century, and it's near a farm. You see anything else interesting around here? Well, so I know, uh, I looked at some LiDAR images earlier, and I know that the quarry for this lime lime kiln is like right across the field. So maybe we could just walk over there and see what we see. Yeah, let's check it out. We're going to check out where the people who would have used this kiln would have gotten their limestone. It's not far, maybe about a minute's walk across the overgrown field on the side of a hill. Okay, so this is the quarry. We look up and see rocks protruding from the ground among the trees. This is where all the stuff came from. Um, Just chunks and chunks of limestone. Probably hasn't been worked in 100 years. Crazy, like just off the side of the road, we got a quarry and a kiln. Yeah, which is pretty common actually. You didn't want to have to lug limestone a long distance if you could make a kiln next to a quarry. Brennan and I poke around the quarry a little more and then head back through the field, over the fence, and back to his car. All in all, a pretty successful trip. I can now say I know at least one lime kiln road really has a kiln. Liam Elder Connors. Continue on Kelly Stand Road for six miles. In keeping with our theme of roads named for things that used to be on them, we return to the question of Kelly Stand Road, which we got from Richard Schwartz. I have always wondered what it's named after. What is Kelly Stand and what is or was Kelly Stand? This is our last question of the episode, and I think the answer is the most surprising. Want to take one car? Sure. Um, yeah. I drive part of the road with Bill Budd. Kelly Stand runs east-west, from Stratton, up over the shoulder of Stratton Mountain, and back down again to Arlington. That's where Bill Budd works. I'm the curator at the Russell, Vermontiana collection in uh, Arlington. We're heading up the curvy dirt road, with the roaring branch tumbling over boulders nearby and thick forest on both sides. Like much of Vermont, it hasn't always looked like this. Looking at this now, there's so many trees, but it's actually a very young forest. Young because the old growth was logged. Bill says there were two big logging camps here, and 18 mills on the Roaring Branch that made things like washboards and shoe pegs. There's reports and stories that the hills, mountains around Arlington had um, been pretty much denuded of all of the, the trees by 1800. You might be thinking what I thought. Kelly Stand, Stand of Trees. This road was probably named after a logging operation, right? Wrong. The hotel actually started off probably around 1840 when a fellow named Russell Lawrence leased the land to William Kelly. The Kelly Stand was actually a mountain hotel run by this guy, William Kelly. Stand is antique slang for a place to stay. And that's pretty confusing to a lot of people. The stand, or hotel, had 15 rooms and a ballroom on the third floor. Bill says it was popular among both locals and travelers. They used to have quite a few events up there, especially in the winter. They had these wonderful balls. And one that we have a nice record of was February 22nd for Washington's birthday ball. Of course, this was before cars, so people traveled to the Kelly Stand by horse. $2.50 would get you meal or room and uh, care for your horse and team. Even today, Kelly Stand Road isn't plowed in the winter. 
But imagine trying to climb up the snowy mountain in a horse-drawn carriage. Another fun fact, before it was Kelly Stand Road, it was the Stratton Turnpike, one of those roads that charged a toll that we heard about from Paul Gillis. At this point, Bill and I are pulled over by the Sunderland-Stratton town line. Bill takes out some historical documents from a book called Voices of Sunderland by Shirley Lawrence Latique. This is what the hotel used to look like in a stereographic image. Um, pretty big. Pretty big. It had, you know, several wings, the uh, nice porch on the front. And then as the years go by, it starts to fall down into disrepair. Um, about 1930, the porch is coming down. The Kelly stand changed hands a few times and eventually closed down. Bill says the structure was bulldozed around 1950. He says if you know what to look for, you can still find the side road that led to the hotel. But even he can't spot it today. Things are more overgrown since the last time he was up here, 10 years ago. I don't know. Coming back here, does it like bring the history to life for you even more? Or do you just have a sense that this much more time has passed and like it's that much further decayed or decomposed in the woods? Well, it's much further than I remembered <laughs> 10 years ago. Um, it has a sense of um, of history. I mean, this is it's going back to nature in a way that is, um, I think, rather sentimental in my, my feeling about it. Bill reads me a poem by Walter Hard. He was a Manchester poet. It was written when the Kelly Stand Hotel was well past its prime. And just like Bill Budd, the poet embraced the passage of time. The Kelly Stand. Memories of the old days are often memories of life that was hard. The labors of the pioneers to clear the forest, the struggle to wrest a living from the soil, the isolation of mountain farms. But the old tavern is holding fast to the gay days. Perhaps its walls are weather-beaten and bulging, and its piazza roof hangs down like a closed eyelid, and its floors are rotting. It's true that bricks strew the hearth, and the staircase is broken and shaky. But under the sagging roof, the ballroom stands, with its arched ceiling clean and white. The cracks in the plaster are only the wrinkles of old age. The floor still springs as it used to do when dancing feet made merry. A rotting shell, the old tavern, full of ruin and decay, while the carefree steps of dancing ghosts still echo through the arched ballroom. They're dancing to the eerie music of the wind, and the dark spruces by the fan window. Thanks so much for listening to the show this month. We have historical and present-day photos of a bunch of these roads up at our website, bravelittlestate.org. While you're there, you can submit a question of your own and vote on the one you want us to tackle next. Brave Little State is a production of Vermont Public Radio. We have support from the VPR Innovation Fund and from VPR Sustaining Members. If you like this show, consider becoming one. Editing this month by Lynn McRae, and we have engineering support from Chris Albertine. Our theme music is by Ty Gibbons. Other music in this episode by Blue Dot Sessions and Poddington Bear. Special thanks to Paul Carnahan, Brennan Gothier, Devin Coleman, and Michelle Fields, who wrote a very helpful article about the South Woodstock Poor Farm in the Vermont Standard. I'm Angela Evansy. We'll be back next month with something a little different. 
a special project that a few of us have been working on here at VPR. Don't miss it. Oh, and be brave, ask questions. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts.